let's join together in prayer. Father, it's delightful for us to come to this place. We know that there's nothing particularly special about the building, though it is provided by you, and we're thankful for that. What is particularly special is your work of calling us out of the world and placing us into the body of Christ and our uniting together here this morning for the sake of worship, for the sake of glorifying your name, for the sake of humbling ourselves before you and worshiping you in the word. Help us now as we do this. We want to be yielded to you. We want your spirit to have his way in us. We want your word to be proclaimed truthfully. We want to respond rightly to your word ultimately for the purpose of bringing praise to you, to your Son, through your Spirit, for your glory. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. In 1678, John Bunyan published his classic allegorical work entitled, it's a long title, The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come, Delivered Under the Similitude of a Dream. That's the title. We've come to know it as The Pilgrim's Progress, but this particular book has stood the test of time and has really made an impact in so many people's lives. The story records the analogous journey of a man named Christian who is journeying from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Christian is envisioned as carrying a great weight, the burden of his guilt. The weight of his guilt is strapped to him until he arrives at a particular scene described in a section entitled, Proceeds to the Cross, in which it is recorded, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow, and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks." Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins shall be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment. The third also set a mark 
in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Listen to this song. Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Christian there experienced what many of us have experienced. That experience is one of burden, the burden of guilt, the guilt of our sin. There is no freeing ourselves from the burden of our sin. There is no, no ridding ourselves of guilt by our own deeds and our own actions, our own pursuits. We could journey on and on as long as days shall last, and we would not rid ourselves of that burden and that guilt. It would weigh us down unless, unless our eyes gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ. So Christian's story is much like our story, the story of every person who's ever felt the weight of sin and guilt and the consequences of their own sin until they came to see God's solution for the burden of our guilt, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. When we saw the salvation offered to us through his death, on the cross and the consequent resurrection from the dead, our burden of guilt was thrown off. We with joy read the testimony of Scripture in such places as Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, where the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Once that burden of sin and guilt is cast off, do we ever feel the burden of guilt and sin again? We do. In that moment of salvation, when we come to recognize God's solution in Christ, the, the burden of guilt and sin is gone, and we recognize the, the gift of God through Jesus Christ, and we have this, this communion with God, and it's glorious. And then as we turn from day to day, there are times that we feel the pressing weight of sin and guilt and what we call temptation come upon us. Temptation, a weighing down, a burden. Even sometimes without catering to temptation, we feel the guilt of having been tempted. It's an interesting process. It's a difficult process. Do you feel weighed down at times? There are times, many times, that we allow this burden to weigh us down. In the passage we want to discuss this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we want to discuss hope. Hope for the burdened Christian. Look at what this passage says, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the whole context. Our focus, however, will be just on one verse, found in verse 13. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolers, or, or idolaters, excuse me, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. You must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This passage really does give us hope. It gives us warning. It gives us example. It gives us hope. The very text of our greatest Consideration is verse 13, but the context lays out for us an example of, of people who are considered believers, right? They, they came up out of Egypt. They, they were headed toward Israel, the promised land, and they were following, they were following the leadership of God. They followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God fed them, God clothed them, God gave them drink. All throughout this time, God preserved their sandals and their clothing for 38 years. This, this group of people, we, we know that they're following God. And yet, in the face of that circumstance, they catered to their flesh. It tells us and gives us warning about their desire for evil in verse 6. Their idolatry in verse 7. Their sexual immorality in verse 8 their impatience in verse 9, and their complaining in verse 10. As you and I consider temptation and the weight of temptation that comes upon us, that is just a sampling. What other types of temptation do you face? There, there's a, a, a wide variety, a myriad of temptations that we face. Each one has a different set. Is temptation natural? Well, the text says it's common to man. Is everyone tempted? Yes. Here's a question important to understand. Is temptation sin? Is temptation sin? Far too many people live as if temptation itself is sin. And when they're tempted in an area, it's as if they start to condemn themselves before they even indulge in it. So they, they're just as defeated as if they indulged. And the reality is, temptation, as one person has said, is an invitation to sin, 
but it is not necessarily sin itself. Temptation is an entryway into sin, but if temptation is not yielded to, it is actually something else. What is temptation when it's not yielded to? Well, it's a, a source of a demonstration of God's grace. It's a source of encouragement that God, in his infinite power, dealt with lowly me and enabled me not to cater to my desires of the flesh. This is a a good thing. It's something we can rejoice in. As we consider this text of Scripture, we want to notice some facts concerning temptation. First of all, temptation will try to handcuff you. Temptation will try to handcuff you. Look at what it says again in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Overtaken. The word there is to lay hold of. To lay hold of. No temptation has laid hold of you. So this is what it's trying to do. God says it's not going to do this. But temptation's desire is to make you feel as though it is your master now. You, you must cater to me. You must do what I tell you to do. It's trying to handcuff us. That's what temptation does. It feels as though this is, this is the, the direction to go in. If I'll cater to this, I'll feel better. And we all know the, the reality. When we cater to our temptation, how do we feel at the end of that? We feel worse. Never feel better when we cater to temptation. We always feel worse. But temptation tries to make us feel as though this will be better. This will taste better, this will feel better, this will seem better, this will sound better. That's that's the way it goes. It tries to handcuff us. Listen to a couple of passages of Scripture. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 22, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords cords of his sin. It's almost like he's tied up. When you're tied up, kind of get no other direction to go in. I have no capability. The the thought of temptation is, I I have no other choice caught in the cords of his own sin. But the book of James gives us a contrast to that. How many times have you heard someone say, well, so-and-so did this, and so I did that? It's called the blame game. Never heard anyone say that? The devil made me do it? How about that one? Well, the Bible, the Bible cuts to the chase on these types of issues. The Bible says in James chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, his own desires, and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full-grown, brings forth death. James cuts to the chase. Listen, don't blame your wife. Don't blame your husband. Don't blame your kids. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame your coworkers, your neighbors, the guy that cut you off on the street. That one comes up every, every service. Don't blame the person at the grocery store who, who cut their cart in front of you before you got in the aisle. Don't blame everyone else. When you sin, when I sin, I can blame one person and one person alone. That would be me. It's on me. I was drawn away of my own lust and enticed, and I catered to it. Now, God has given us illustration of temptation's desire to 
rule us from the very beginning. You see, we see an account like Cain and Abel in um, Genesis chapter 4. We see an account in, in, I think I wrote Genesis 3. It's Genesis chapter 4. When, when we see this account, we think, well, okay, we've got Cain doing this and Abel's doing this. And, and we think of these two characters. And it's true. that They were literal historical characters that God created. And, and it actually happened. But there is a lesson that, that transcends that very early scene. It's a lesson that, that applies to this very day. You'll remember that Abel brought to God a sacrifice of a lamb or an animal that God had given to him. He brought one of God's creatures to him and says, here, I'm giving this to you. You, you gave it to me, I'm giving it to you. Cain did something else. Cain worked really diligently in the garden. Cain tilled the ground. He, he pulled the weeds. He, he nurtured the, the, the plants. And he picked the fruit. And he brought to God something that, that he wanted to present to God. Here, I have something for you. I've brought this to you. I've worked diligently on this. And here it is for you. And you'll remember that God was not well pleased with, with Cain's sacrifice or his his offering. When God wasn't pleased with Cain's offering, Cain also had a response. You'll remember it. It's recorded for you here. I have it on the screen behind me. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Listen carefully. And its desire is for you. Sin's desire is for you. But you shall rule over it, or you should rule over it. In other words, God has told us from the beginning of time, from the beginning of, of, of creation, that temptation and sin is going to try to handcuff us and capture us and, and make us feel imprisoned. And God says, it doesn't have to be this way. You should rule over it. So the first principle of temptation that we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that temptation tries to handcuff us. No temptation has overtaken you, taken hold of you. Secondly, temptation makes itself seem all-encompassing. Temptation makes itself seem all-encompassing. In other words, this problem that I'm facing, you, you really, you don't understand. You don't understand how bad I have it. Like, my problems are much worse than yours. People don't understand just how deep my problems go. They don't understand what I have to deal with in my house, what I have to deal with in my workplace, what I have to deal with with my own broken body. People don't understand. And the text says, no temptation has taken a hold of you or overtaken you that is not, what, common to man. Maybe, maybe we should take a step back and, and stop having a little pity party and thinking that we're so unique. You are unique. I'll give you that. You might even be bizarre. I'm bizarre. I have no problem admitting it. I'm one of the most bizarre people I've ever met. 
I know this. I, and I'm, so I, when I call you bizarre, it's not like I'm not denigrating you. I'm just, I know how bizarre I am, so I just kind of attribute some of that bizarrity to you. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to men. We don't have to, to look at ourselves as, as, as so unique in our circumstances. You know, as, as we look through the testimony of Scripture, we see the commonness of man all over the place. Please tell me when you read the, the accounts in the Old Testament of failing Israel, don't, you're not looking down your nose at them, right? You're not thinking... What, what kind of idiots are they that they would fall captive to that after all God did for them? Listen, all you have to do is live your life for one day and you say, what an idiot I am after all God has done for me. We don't look down our nose at the, at the Israelites or, the, or the, the disciples when they fail. We see us. We see us in their failure. We see our frailty in their failure. We see our, our incapability in their incapability. We're learning that the nature of man is one of frailty and failure. It's common to man. When the believers who were scattered around Asia Minor were discouraged, Peter encouraged them in the face of their persecution, in the onslaught of their satanic persecution, by stating, listen to what he says in 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. You're not alone. Temptation may seem all-encompassing, like my circumstances are so unique, you don't understand. I have to cater to this because of how deep the struggle is. And the reality is, you know, someone else's struggle may not take on the same form that yours does. But I'll tell you what, their struggle is just as real as yours is. Oh, but you have things all lined up for you. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. You don't know what they face. You don't know what's going on in between their, their, ear, their ears and their, in between their temples. You don't know what's going on in there. Don't just assume because someone else has a, a better house or a better car or a better job or better finances or, or seemingly a better relationship with their spouse than you do that they have no problems. These things are common to man. Thirdly, temptation seeks to, I just have it stated, temptation blurs our vision of God. Temptation seeks to blur our vision of God. Temptation seeks to blur our vision of God. Look what it says again in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. We need this reminder. God is faithful. This is the key to the text. Those three words, key to the text. God is faithful. And you know, temptation tries to strip away our confidence in God. Temptation tries to refocus our gaze somewhere else. But God wants to remind us, I'm faithful. Paul wants to remind us, God is faithful. I want to remind us, God is faithful. No matter what you're facing, how deep the struggle is, how challenging things are, God is faithful. You know, again, right from the very beginning, when, when the serpent tried to beguile Eve, and in fact did, what was the tactic that he took? The tactic was, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. 
You're not allowed to eat it from the fruit? Oh, no, 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 we can eat from all the, all the trees. All the trees, they're all good to eat from, except for this one. Oh, my word, really? That one? That's the best one. That's the one that'll make you like God, and God doesn't want you to be like him. It's so subtle. Of course God wants me to be like him. Like, I'm his image bearer, Right? And, and of course he wants me to like him. I'm supposed to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and the creeping things that creep upon the earth. Of course he wants me to be like him. This makes sense. For me to, if, I, if I'll just partake of that, that piece of fruit, I'll be like God and I can really display his image then. But outside of God's directive will, God gave a direct order and Satan countered it and twisted it and manipulated it. Temptation seeks to blur our vision of God, to make us think, well, this could be good. This, this thing I, I could do, you know, if I can just do this on the other side of it, I'll really be able to serve God, and I'll really be a testimony of God's grace, and I'll really make an impact on people. If I could just do this first, then I'll really be able to serve God. That's called human means. Human means. We're not looking for human means, brother and sister in Christ. We're looking for divine means. That's the only way to get divine ends. Divine ends come by divine means, not by human means. Human means never accomplish divine ends. Never. Jesus made it clear. This is one of my favorite verses to quote. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The only way spiritual ends take place is through the spirit of God. Divine ends come through divine means. But temptation seeks to blur our vision of God. Take a look at a passage of scripture. Hold your hand here because we're going to come back. Okay, so 1 John chapter 2 just for a moment. 1 John chapter 2 in 1 John 2 beginning in verse 15 the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us this instruction. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires and your desires for it. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a familiar text. And I don't think it needs a whole lot of commentary. I do want to ask a few questions just for your consideration. What does God offer you? How long does it last? What's better, what the world has to offer or what God has to offer? We know the answer to these questions. They're, they're, they're simple things. And John brings it down to this base simplicity. He says, you, listen, if you, if you want to love the world and the, all the things that come with it and the desires of your flesh and the eyes and the pride of life, uh, you, you can do that. But just remember this. All those things are passing away. God, he's eternal. What he offers is eternal. His grace, his mercy, his kindness, his love, his presence, his kingdom is eternal. We, we, we can't sacrifice on the altar of the present 
those things that are eternal. And so here we are in this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. He says, remember this, God is faithful. And what happens is temptation skews our attention away from the eternal, away from God's faithfulness, away from who God is and his, his goodness in our, our lives. And it, and it causes us to look upon other things for what only God can provide. Temptation seeks to bring our attention off of God onto other things to attain what only God himself can provide. Fourthly, back in 1 Corinthians 10, temptation, this will make you smile. At least, if you know Christ, this will make you smile. Temptation is powerless against grace. We have to know this. Temptation is powerless against grace. Before we even dive into it, you know what that means? Every time I cater to the desires of my flesh or yield to temptation, what is it telling me? It means I didn't yield to God's grace because God's grace was more than sufficient to overcome that temptation, that desire, that sinfulness. Temptation is powerless against grace. Take a look again at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now that's an interesting statement. And, and we, have to, we have to try to understand it in the context of Scripture a little bit. I want you to think about this. I want you to think theologically, okay? You ready? I want you to think about your ability. You. Just like little old you. And I want you to think about temptation... And I want you to think about whether you can, as you, overcome your flesh. It's an important question to answer. Like, do you think that after one year of salvation, or after your salvation, or two years after your salvation, or five years after your salvation, or ten years after your salvation, or fifty years after your salvation, or seventy years after your salvation, that you've really, you've really got this Christian life thing down? I, I, I'm, I'm now really spiritually mature. And so when temptation comes, I know just what to do to deal with temptation, and I can overcome it. And as a backup plan, God's faithful, and he won't allow a temptation into my life that I'm not able to handle. Do you think that's how that should read? I don't think so. I don't think how that, that's how that reads. I think how it reads is, when you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ are empowered by the Spirit of God, there is not a temptation that comes in our pathway that can overcome us. How, how can I say this? Well, just a couple of verses of Scripture for our consideration, one of which you're very familiar with, well, probably, probably a few of which you're familiar with. In Philippians chapter 4, and verse 13, if you know it, say it with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So whose power are we talking about here? Whose ability are we talking about here? Christ's. 
Not talking about your ability or my ability. My ability brings me nowhere spiritually. I might be able to do great things physically. You might be able to do great things. You might have great strong willpower where you can overcome um, temptation for cigarettes. Or you may have great willpower. You can overcome come, uh, temptation toward alcohol or overeating or whatever other you know, thing that you have in mind. You might be able to have really great self-will. And, and you can overcome these things. Those aren't necessarily spiritual things. Those are just things. Those are just decisions of the will. They don't make you more spiritual. When empowered by the Spirit of God, however, now we're talking about real spiritual. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, uh, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, the book of Galatians provides us with such great texts uh, as every other book in the Bible. But in Galatians chapter 5, if you'll take just a, a quick glance over there with me, Galatians chapter 5, I want to start reading in verse 16. Paul speaks with such confidence He's very dogmatic when he speaks. He says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not, not might not, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You know, it works in both directions, folks. You're walking in the Spirit, and you know what's right, and you, the, the, the flesh comes, and it's trying to, to draw your attention over here. But you're in the Spirit. The Spirit says, that's got nothing for me. God's Spirit says, that, that's not going to profit. That doesn't accord with the fruit that is demonstrated when the Spirit controls. It's, it's not love or joy or peace or long-suffering or gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, or temperance. None of that's going to come forth out of that activity. That's not the direction. You, you do, don't do the things that you want to do in your flesh. The, the other way is, here you are walking in the flesh, and the Spirit brings to remembrance, hey, this is, this is the way you're supposed to go. Do you know what the flesh says? I don't want to do that. I, I, and the reality is, I, I can't do that so long as I'm in the flesh. So long as I'm in the flesh, I can't do anything spiritual. So long as I am in the spirit, I can't do anything fleshly. The two worlds, they don't connect. We're either in the spirit or in the flesh. We're not somewhere in a quasi-state in between. Keep that in mind, folks. Temptation is powerless. Powerless against grace. God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. It is capable. When I yield to temptation, it's because I step outside of the grace that God is pouring out into my life. I step outside of it. I willfully choose me. Interestingly... In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14, it says, flee from idolatry. 
I wonder why it says that. Because catering to my flesh is just that. It's idolatry. I'm choosing to bow down and worship me instead of bowing down and worshiping God. So, with that being said, I'd love for us to turn to Ephesians 6. Instead of doing that, I give you a homework assignment. If you choose to accept it, read Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Okay? Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, noticing things like the power of the Lord or the strength of the Lord. Okay, in the first few, few verses particularly, telling us that it's through God's ability, God's strength, not mine, that we have the ability to, to ward off the fiery darts of the wicked one. Temptation it is powerless against grace. Here's a, a fifth truth about temptation. We are zeroing in, folks. We're zeroing in on the end. Temptation always has an exit door. Temptation always has an emergency exit door. It says, again, verse 13, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. He will always provide the way of escape. So here we are being tempted. And we're empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit's working, and I'm tempted. God will always show us that's not the way to go. This is the way to go. The emergency exit door. So we go in the direction the Spirit leads us. And temptation goes that way. It's, it's behind us or it's over there because we are going in the direction the Spirit leads us. It has an emergency exit door. Uh, it provides a way to escape. In, in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord Jesus Christ out of a pure heart. In Romans chapter 13, it tells us to, to put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and to do what? Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And so he, he gives us other ways. Rather than doing this that we're tempted to, here's a, a better way. Here's a different way. Here's a sixth fact about temptation. And I think it's vitally important for us. Temptation does not take a vacation. Temptation does not take a vacation. Listen to how the end of this passage comes. It says that you may be able to endure it. That you may be able to endure it. The word in the Greek means this, to bear up under. I want you to try to see. It's a word picture. It's like we've got one of those... Bars on our shoulders, and we're doing the squats, right? Oh, yeah, everyone loves a good squat or, or a lunge. Oh, yeah, they're really great for the gluteus maximus. So here we're doing this, and, and the, the weight is there, and it's pushing down. But God says, by my spirit, by my power, you can bear up under it. In other words, the emergency exit door does not necessarily mean that the temptation goes away. We have to know this, friends. You want to know why you have to know it? Because this is what's going to happen. Here we are, we think, okay, uh, I'm walking in the Spirit, and I'm loving God, and I'm pursuing Christ, and this temptation comes. No, uh, the Spirit gives me the ability to overcome that temptation. And, and we think, yes, praise God, God's grace is active in my life, and I feel, I feel great because I know that, that God's leading me. And then that same temptation comes back, and we think, 
Oh, you fool! There, there's something corrupt inside of you and, and, and you're catering to your flesh. And the reality is, no. Temptation isn't sin. Yielding to temptation is sin. And if I think that the, the return of temptation is sinful, I'm going to say, I quit. I give up. I can't overcome it. I can't lick it. It's licked me again. And we live defeated. And the reality is God says, that temptation is going to keep coming. And it's going to keep coming. And it's going to keep coming. What I'm promising you is not the removal of temptation. Someday. Not the removal of temptation. What I'm promising you is the ability to endure. To bear under it. Just as a slight little word picture for us to, to see. Do you remember reading Ezekiel chapter 1? Anyone? Ezekiel chapter 1. It's, it's like, what? That's, that's when, you, when you're done reading Ezekiel chapter 1, you say, huh? Because it's, it's envisioning uh, the presence and the glory of God, but it describes these four creatures, right? Uh, these four living creatures. They're, they're angels. Underneath, the, 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 this expanse and up above that expanse is the throne of God and so at the, at the end of Ezekiel chapter 1 you see like the glory of God and, and he describes the beautiful radiant color and all that beauty but the first like 20 some verses he's describing the scene underneath the expanse under the throne of God and he describes these, these angelic beings one of the things that he describes, other than like wheels within wheels and the wheels that have eyes and all those beautiful things that, that, that are great, he says that these angels, their legs are straight. Now, I, I can't be dogmatic. I believe that it means they don't have knees. I, no, I, seriously, I'm, I'm not joking. I think it means they don't have knees. Here they've got these straight legs. There's... If you understand that passage, it really appears to be like this is God's chariot throne. Because wherever God's voice leads them, this whole thing lifts up and it goes there. Okay? So this chariot throne is resting on these angels and these wheels and they have these straight legs. And there's, you got to picture like the, the immensity of this weight that is on them. And their knees never bend. Why? God gave them straight legs. It, it just kind of gives us a little bit of a mental picture of this bearing up under. Because God is able to make it so I will not cater to the temptation of my flesh. He can do this. Do you believe it? Yeah. You and I, we, we look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 12. It's great seeing we also are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight. Those are things that are not necessarily sinful. And the sin which so easily besets us, and, and we stop there, and we're like, okay, so I have, I have a besetting sin, and so, well, I just kind of cater into this every now and then, it's just my besetting sin, you know, it's, it's the one, it's the one thing, you know, God knows, God understands, he remembers my frame, I'm dust. And we kind of like move on from there. That's not what that passage is trying to communicate. That passage is trying to communicate this. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and let us lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares us and let us be run the race with endurance while looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith 
who for the joy that went before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's trying to give us an encouragement not to let weight, those things that are not sinful, or the sin to keep us from pressing forward. And I'll tell you, it's, it's not going to come by your own will and endurance. It's not going to become because you're like really special and super spiritual. It's going to come because God is faithful. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to endure or, or bear up under it. He's given us everything we need, friends. You, you feel weighed down occasionally? I do. I don't know what is weighing down on you, what the temptation is. Maybe some relationship in your life, some job problem, some physical problem. Maybe it's just your, the, the, the challenge of your own flesh that you're just, you're, you cater to it. I don't know what is weighing down on you. But I can tell you this, friends. God's given us everything we need not to allow that weight to defeat us. As we look at this text of Scripture, I think what we want to understand about temptation is uh, its nature. Its nature is that it's unending. It has plans for us other than God's plans. It tries to ensnare us. It tries to make us feel as though God is um, not, not really seeking our best interest and that other people don't have it nearly as bad as we do that it doesn't ever stop. We need to consider the truth of the choices that are involved. I can actually yield myself to God instead of my flesh. We, we really should, from this text, consider removing unnecessary opportunities. You know, if you've been living with yourself for how long, you might know some of the things that might be a challenge for you. How about setting things up in a better situation so you're not putting undue stress on yourself. But that's, that's just the physical means. Ask God. This is, this is the primary. Ask God to empower you by his spirit. Does that sound like a, a prayer in accordance with God's will? God, empower me by your spirit. Sounds like it to me. Does God answer prayers in accordance with his will? He certainly does. Hmm. That makes me think that I might want to pray that regularly. God, empower me by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Help me. And finally, to remember that our only source of hope is Christ. Listen to these words from Jerry Bridges in the book Respectable Sins. He writes, by acknowledging my sin, I mean more than a half-hearted admission to myself that I acted selfishly in a given instance. Rather, I mean a wholehearted, defenseless admission I am a selfless, selfish person. And that particular act was only a manifestation of the selfishness that still dwells within me. But in order to make such an admission, I need the assurance that my selfishness is forgiven. That God no longer holds it against me. The gospel gives us that assurance. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Why does God not count my sins against me? Because he has already charged it to Christ. 
as the prophet Isaiah wrote, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To the extent that I grasp in the depth of my being this great truth of God's forgiveness of my sin through Christ, I'll be freed up to honestly and humbly face the particular manifestations of sin in my life. That's why it is so helpful to affirm each day with John Newton that I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. You see, friends, passages like this always send us to Christ. They always send us to Christ. They show us our incapability. They show us his sufficiency. We, we look at these passages and we recognize, God, there is hope. Even when I'm weighed down, I recognize the, the nature of temptation, but I also recognize the faithfulness of God. How about you? You recognize God's faithfulness? He is able to overcome in your life everything you face daily. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to yield to you, to believe you, and to allow you to do your work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.